This episode of Warp Five is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, website, portfolio, or an online store. Create your own space today by visiting squarespace.com and use offer code Trek Nine to save ten percent. And also by TrekFan, where you'll explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. Put your love for Trek into action by visiting trekfan.org and help us move the world one step closer to the Star Trek future. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm/donate to get our new alien badges and art prints featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. How we doing, Trip? Ready when you are. Prepare for war. Course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp Five, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me once again, as she is every week, from down under, it's Kate Walsh. And uh, Kate, did I hear you've been swimming with the sharks tonight? Uh, well, try not to make too much of a habit of it, but this week I thought, well, we've got beautiful weather. If I'm going to go for a swim, I might as well swim with the sharks. <laughs> You see, you seem very brave, Kate. <laughs> so yeah, before the show, we were talking about the Mako and Enterprise, and you asked me why is their logo a shark,、mm. other than the fact that you know a shark, of course, is frightening, and of course the Mako are frightening to the enemy. But yeah, it's it's a Mako shark. Well, the first time I saw it. I thought it was actually either George or Gracie, and then I looked a bit closer, and I realised it was actually <laughs> a shark, not a whale. That would have been great. On the side of the Mako's uniform, there's an emblem with George and Gracie. On it. <laughs> that would have been that would have been fantastic. And then in Star Trek Four. They they look up in the computers and they find first they find the old Mako emblems from Starfleet and that's what clues them in to the fact that it might be Wells and then they decide to go try to match Wells' song. It's just it's all coming together, isn't it? <laughs> it really is, just like an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> it all comes together at the end. So now we're going to talk about Mako today, and you know, Kate, I really love the exploration angle of Star Trek and the whole. Seeking out new worlds and new civilizations, thing. But the question that always lingers is whether Starfleet is an exploratory organization or a military one. And this is a debate that fans love to get into with each other. And people ask me about it sometimes too. And you know, I don't really think that there's a clear-cut answer to this. I think that it's a bit of both. But when it comes to Enterprise. There definitely isn't a clear-cut answer because, at that point in time, you know, Starfleet is still trying to figure out for themselves who they are, 
And then, of course, the, the whole Zindi attack comes along, and they put military people, the Mako, on the Enterprise. I guess I had mixed feelings about that. In the context of the plot, it was completely logical. Um, you know, they're heading off into, into the expanse, quite a dangerous mission. There's a lot at stake. You would expect that they were going to up their military capacity quite a bit in response to that. It's interesting because, uh, as we've we've said before, I actually watched Enterprise after its first run of TV, and in terms of time frames, um, I'd actually watched some other sci-fi. That, that, that when I, when I, we first went into this Mako storyline, it reminded me an awful lot of um, what I'd seen before on Stargate Universe. I don't know if you ever watched that, Chris, but. I haven't really get, I didn't get to see the show over here, but I know kind of the basic setting. So yeah, I do know what you're talking about. So a big part of the the premise of that story is um, the the conflict between the scientific personnel and the military personnel and the power struggle that goes on there. And we see a lot of that in this third season of Enterprise in terms of the relationship between Mako and, and the other Starfleet personnel. Yeah, um, so that was probably. Well, you got that a bit on Stargate Atlantis as well, where you have that mm. struggle. That's kind of a Stargate theme, yeah. yeah. So, so that that was the, you know the first thing thing that struck me about it. As I said, completely logical in terms of the plot, but I tend to be a little bit of a, a purist in terms of you know the the exploration side of of Starfleet. I'm not overly fond of when the, of when we focus on the military aspects of of Star Trek plots. So, you know, a little bit uh, in two minds about that. How about you? Well, yeah, I have, um, I'm probably more open to it than you seem to be. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. We have three main points that we're going to cover tonight with regard to the Mako and, you know, how they get on the ship and on the show and such. Before we do that, Let's just give a little bit of background about the Mako, because there are a couple of points in here that are interesting to me. Of course, the Mako stand for Military Assault Combat Operations, and they're a military organization, but they're not part of Starfleet. And we find out in the episode Harbinger, it's mentioned that their weapons are three years more advanced than those of Starfleet, which isn't really that much more advanced when you think about it, Mm. three years, but... What's interesting to me is just the simple fact that there is a military organization like this on Earth that's not part of Starfleet because it shows that we think of Starfleet as being the kind of overarching organization on Earth Mm. later on in Star Trek. There's like everyone lives on Earth and then there's just this one government, which is Starfleet. It's kind of strange, right? The president has their office in Paris. Starfleet headquarters is in San Francisco. It's never quite clear whether different nation states are still there with their own autonomous governments or exactly what the setup is there. But at this point in time, there's something going on here. And I guess West Point is still around because the Mako have training facilities in Atlanta at West Point. At the Janus Loop, which is, I take it, although they're never clear about this, to be somewhere in the outer solar system, probably around Saturn or Jupiter. And 
somehow when the Zindi attack comes up, you mentioned at the beginning that you felt that after the Zindi attack, they would beef up their military capability. But it's really not a case of them beefing up their military capability. It's more a case of they needed an immediate response. So Starfleet, which I feel overall was kind of seeing itself as like a NASA-type organization mm. at that point in time where they're going to go out and explore, have to call on this third-party military. And it made me wonder, like, did they hire them as contractors or <laughs> what? How, where do they find these guys, you know? But but so they bring them and they, they assign them to the Enterprise, to the NX-01, so they can go out on that mission. So that's just like the very basic background of who the Mako are and the fact that they're already around, but they're not part of Starfleet. Well, the employment arrangements are actually quite relatively interesting to contemplate. You know, you (laughs) joked about whether they were contractors or not, but as you've stated, they they are outside of Starfleet. You know, the relationship between the two groups uh, was tense and, and, you know, those lines of authority weren't always clear and um yeah i mean it, it is an interesting concept i don't know that it's ever really explicitly stated you know what what that relationship is other well, it's than not. you know the discussions about yeah. mako um you know being there to help and that they've got kind of their expertise and they're there to to help the crew along but right e- exactly what kind of authority they've got isn't isn't really clear Whereas when we think about, uh, as I mentioned earlier, something like Stargate Universe, they were almost presented as two completely separate groupings of people, each with their own basis of authority. And they were almost equal, so they were clashing against each other because of that. I still get the impression as I watch the Mako episodes in Enterprise that ultimately it is Starfleet's mission and Starfleet has the ultimate authority. Um, but not a direct authority. Right. I think that's the case there. I mean, once they're on the ship, it's Archer's call. Mm. He's in command of the ship. And I don't think any Mako, whether it be Hayes or anyone else, can override Archer. So it ultimately is Starfleet. But back on Earth, it's never clear who is the governing authority of the Mako or how large is this organization? Because my impression of the Mako was always that they were more like the Navy SEALs in the U.S. military. They were like a specialized group. And maybe there were more of them than there are Navy SEALs. But it didn't feel like the Mako were the entire... They weren't like the United States Marines, for example, Mm. which is a larger group where the, the Navy SEALs are a very specialized group. I always kind of took the Mako to be more like the SEALs. I think that's quite um, an interesting point that you make, particularly given the uh, naval influences that are drawn throughout Enterprise. I wouldn't be surprised if that was a model for Mako. And Starfleet that we see in Enterprise and especially in those opening scenes in Broken Bow feels like the Navy, still, you know, their uniform designs, kind of Mm. everything about them still feels more like the Navy than what we have later on. Now, even later Starfleet, it's Starfleet is modeled after the Navy, you know, their, their rank structure, everything is Naval, but 
they really, they feel in the 23rd or 24th century, again, like a space organization, right? But the Starfleet of Enterprise still feels more like an earthbound naval organization, Mm. more so than a space agency. Definitely. Um, When I think about later Star Trek, I I find that it's... uh, it's much more difficult to to really define what Starfleet is, and you mentioned that a little bit before about its scientific and its military elements, and you know it's not it's not as earthbound obviously as it is in as it is in Enterprise. The it's a much more all encompassing kind of organisation, and uh, you know we we certainly get the sense later on that there aren't really nation states anymore, and. And Starfleet almost comes across as a as a governing authority later on, much more so than it does in Enterprise. Right, it does because, I mean, you see, like in Deep Space Nine, Homefront and Paradise Lost, they have the authority to declare martial law on mm. the streets, and I don't know that it's kind of not an authority that you would expect unless they actually are governing and and you wouldn't expect them to only be governing the united states which is of course what we see in Mm. uh, ds9 because you know we see largely new orleans there so well okay well let's talk about the response to the zindi attack though because that's why the mako show up on the show in the first place and it's why they get put onto the nx01 and i i think that initially some fans may have a problem with the idea of these military personnel being put onto the ship just because it seems to not be a Starfleet thing to do. But uh, I think within the context of the show, it made perfect sense to me. I guess the other thing is that you could see it as yet another of Enterprise's raiding ploys to pull people in by adding another action element to the show mm by adding another element that kind of is a little bit less spacey and a little bit more into the military or law enforcement type uh, program. But I I really didn't see it that way because it made sense that Archer and his crew were not really equipped to go out and deal with this. And Starfleet really had no choice but to call upon people who truly were trained as military fighters to go out and assist with this, given that the very survival of Earth itself was at stake. Well, I think uh, the other thing that that bringing Mako into the third season did for the show was that it added an element of tension, something new to play off of. Um, I I love some of the scenes where we see uh, Mako training the Enterprise crew in combat and um, and, and it really reinforces... To me, again, some of that stuff that we see in the earlier seasons where the crew really are quite ill-equipped to deal with a lot of what they're facing in the same way that we see Hoshi really struggling with adapting to life in space and those challenges. This is another challenge that we can see them having to confront. Uh, and I don't think that it's we, – we certainly don't see that later on, like in Next Gen or any of the other – 24th century shows they they just seem to be much more prepared overall and it's not that, that we see you know their military capacity uh, obviously on the screen 
we don't see them doing combat training and things like that, but it's it's implied that in general they have all, everything that they need and all of the capabilities that are required for the job already there. So I like yeah. that we get to see yet another area of vulnerability for them. Well, think of it this way. The 22nd century, the Mako on the NX-01, this is the start. And in the future, 23rd, 24th century, at the academy, everybody learns how to fight. Mm. They have fight club at Starfleet <laughs> Academy because here, yes, the Mako are training the crew on hand-to-hand combat and such. But again, next generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager... The crew know how to fight, right? They they can they can take out almost anybody. You know, Chris, I'm really disappointed in you. You you should know that the first rule of Fight Club is not to talk about Fight Club. That's right. Yeah, I mentioned it, didn't I? You did. So what happens now? Do like men and men in black suits show up to take <laughs> me away? I think it's Navy SEALs actually, but. <laughs> So I, it was good that they're there, and you could also look at it as this is – I said earlier Starfleet is trying to figure out who they are at this point. And this may be the point at which – and of course, this is a lot of kind of retconning, which you have to do with Enterprise a bit because – okay, so the Zendi attack happened in Earth's past, but of course, we never heard of it because – it was created for Enterprise. So then you have to kind of in your mind figure, mm. well, okay, okay, on the timeline, this really happened. We just never heard about it on the other shows. And if you think of it that way, that crisis happened. It was a turning point for Starfleet where Starfleet realized they can't be NASA. They have to be something that's a hybrid mm. between the military and the space organization. And after that, maybe the Mako became more and more integrated with Starfleet. And so then, you know, we joke here about the club whose name we shall not speak. Mm. And it became something that's more and more part of Starfleet. Yep. It's, it's also interesting if you think about it, uh, DS9, especially during the Dominion War, when they talk about ground troops, that's something you never hear like in the next generation, the idea of federation or starfleet ground troops Mm. but it is something that you hear a lot about in the dominion war and i just i find it hard to accept the idea that the officers who we see on starships you know Riker, data geordie these guys that they are ground troops yeah it seems that starfleet must have actual soldiers in the way that we have actual soldiers in our military today who actually go put boots on the ground, go to the front lines, and fight these wars. And so maybe those are Mako. Mm. Maybe the Mako were incorporated into Starfleet at that point. So it's very interesting to think about what the origins could be and then try to follow that thread back through the later series on the timeline Mm. that actually came first on television. Well... It's not something until I'd seen Enterprise I thought a great deal about. Yeah, I mean, we look at, as you said, it's almost a NASA organisation and it's quite natural it would have started as that. That's an, quite um, a logical thing to assume that 
uh, space exploration is going to come out of something like a NASA program, but it's certainly not military. So I, I, you know, commend the writers for looking at that and for addressing, or well, how did we get from a completely scientific organisation to this hybrid that you've mentioned? It adds a lot of value. I mean, I, I'm not always a, a fan of the Mako storylines. I don't think they're really developed as much as they could right. be. It, it's kind of tokenistic yeah. and provides a little bit of tension for Reed, which I think is where a lot of its value is as well. But um, yeah. brilliant fight scenes. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it does have its place. You know, It's about filling yeah. in some of those gaps as to how we could have got from, from one place to where we ended up being in the 24th century. Right. And, you know, you remember on the original series how in the early days of the original series, Kirk talks about them being from the United Earth Space Probe Agency. And then, of course, later on, eventually we get Starfleet. And, of course, it's just in the writing, you know, they're creating a new show and they haven't quite gotten their terminology worked out yet. And in the 60s, they weren't as detail-oriented, I guess, going into mm. A series like that as they would be today where they make sure they figure out what they're going to call everything but there's that scene in the terra prime slash demons story where they are there inside the the conference room in the chamber and there's that emblem on the floor of starfleet but it's also written on the emblem united earth space probe agency mm. and that also makes you wonder a little bit about was there a United Earth Space Probe Agency and Starfleet and they kind of merged together or were they two branches of the same organization or exactly how did that work as well? Yeah. Well, there's still, still quite a few elements that are unexplored. Yeah. So it does feel like the origin of it, though, is very much scientific space exploration mm. and then we get into this. So, And just a little bit more about the militarization of Starfleet. And we've, we're already talking about it a bit here. Uh, I, I think this idea, and I think this is the idea that Starfleet has at first, is that they're going to build starships and they're going to go out into space and they're going to be explorers. And they're going to seek out new worlds and new civilizations and new life forms. But I think it's a very naive mm. view to take. Absolutely, and we see that with Archer early on in that first season. He's just so innocent and just assumes the best of everyone and we're just out here to explore and say hello and see what we can learn from each other, completely assuming that everyone else is going to want the same thing. Yeah, Archer says things like, oh, yeah, by the way, we're from Earth. You know, I expect him <laughs> to just... Here are our coordinates. <laughs> I know. It says, "Here's my card. <laughs> Give us a call." <laughs> oh, wait! You're not you're not friendly. You might want to destroy us and eat us. <laughs> Maybe I should be more careful. <laughs> That's how they are at first. But it's nice. I mean, it's fun. It's it's you know we're we're naive going out there for the first time, which is nice. You know, the other thing that I think, and. I don't know how much of this was intentional in the writing, but if you really want to look at it, I think that, you know, every time we've had a great war in our history, I feel like, and some people will probably disagree with me on this, but I feel like overall we become 
a little bit more peaceful or a little bit more tolerant after we've had a great war, you know, after each world war, other conflicts. And I think long term, we remain a little bit more peaceful and tolerant than we were before. But I think that, you know, as time goes by, we forget about what happened and then we become a bit less peaceful again. I kind of feel like we're in that cycle a little bit in the world today. And I think in in the Star Trek timeline, I think after World War III and the great devastation of World War III, that mankind really pulled back, you know, because they almost destroyed themselves or we almost destroyed ourselves in the future in Star Trek. And they probably like really took a, a very harsh reaction. You know, we tend to to react very drastically to situations. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they probably pulled way back and that led to this idea that we're going to be peaceful. People out there must also be peaceful. We're just going to go out and explore space mm-hmm. and kind of forgetting that violence is a human tendency. And it really, it takes real consequences for us to remember what happens when we give in to those violent tendencies. And as time goes by and the memory fades, you, you have to kind of fall back into it. And and then also circumstances will throw you back into it quickly. And we've seen that in our own world where, you know, we've had things like the 9-11 attacks, for example, where it's just some event happens and it just you know, pulls you right back in and you have to react to it. And that's what we see in Enterprise. And of course, the timing of it, you know, right after that as well with the Zindi arc, the Zindi attack Earth and humans, Earth has to wake up and Earth has to realize that this whole idea that we're just going to be space explorers. Yeah, that's not going to (laughs) work. I don't think Uh, we're going to have to bring in the military again. I, I think, as you said, humanity probably denied some of its own aggressive tendencies and violent tendencies, but the more significant thing that we see through enterprise is, is that they just, uh, because humanity was, wasn't really violent anymore, we just made the assumption that no one else was either, and they really got burnt. Um, and, you know, one of my, my favourite elements of, of season four is the episode Home, where that seems to really hit hit home for Archer, uh, and and he's quite uh, shocked. It's almost like he's had a a breakup of a relationship, and he's just devastated. He thought it was all going fine, and then suddenly, you know, it, it's hit the fan, and and he's quite shocked that that someone could treat him badly. You know, that he he's just really there was a naivety, which I think throughout season three. It, it turned into anger, and that's how he dealt with that, yeah. and suppressed yeah. that because he didn't have the time to really deal with it. The mission was was there to be uh, carried out, but um, he almost goes into a depression later on mm-hmm. in right. coming to terms with uh, reality being different to what he had assumed it was. Yeah, I think he summed it up perfectly at home when he told Hernandez that things have changed since the Enterprise left space dock. Mm. You'll spend a lot of your time boldly going into battle. Mm. And that's, you know, clearly not what he or any of them signed up for, but it turned out to be the reality. And 
I, I guess that leads to the, the final point to talk about here. And that's just how this fits in with the core vision of Star Trek. Mm. And I don't know, I kind of have a feeling that you and I are going to differ on this. So how do you feel this fits into the core vision of Star Trek? I think in terms of the big picture of Star Trek, it works fine. It, it's a part of mm. that evolution. I'm naturally more drawn to the exploratory elements of Star Trek, but it does it makes sense that there needs to be a military arm in terms of um, you know what you've just said about this not being what they signed up for in terms of workforce structure. It also makes perfect sense that you would have a dedicated military arm so that it's not the the sciency types that are going to have to do that. That's not what they signed up for. So, you know, I think that works. I think it's the just the reality of, of what they're getting into, going out into space, but also because it's, you know, a lot of the resources are being put into Starfleet, that that is also going to be the military element um, of Earth's uh, capabilities. In saying that, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm less of a fan of, of storylines that, that tend to involve conflict. You know, I don't, it's not that I think it's contradictory to the core vision of Star Trek, more that like, I think it's a natural element of, of life, but I also happen to think that it's not really the stuff that Gene Roddenberry intended the show to focus on. Yeah, so that that's the point, I guess, to get to right there. And I think that, and, and it's not exclusive to Enterprise or the Mako or anything. Mm. Uh, and in fact, it centers more around Deep Space Nine more mm. often than not when it comes to the fan discussion. But whether the conflict itself is contrary to the core vision of Star Trek. And yeah, see, for me, I feel, well, the question is, what do you believe is the core vision of Star Trek or the core purpose of Star Trek? Mm. Is it that the future is a utopian society where there's no war and there's no hunger and there's no racism and everyone gets along and Earth is a paradise and we've overcome our problems? Or is it a way for us to examine ourselves so that we can improve ourselves? And for me, it's the latter, though I know it's a widely held view that Gene Roddenberry would not have wanted there to be any conflict of course we know how that plays into writing the show itself and the mm. problems that it presents for creating drama but I, I don't know for me i just feel like the core vision of star trek is flawed mm. in the first place and that probably will ruffle the feathers of some fans but the reason is that i i think that it's a beautiful vision to have of the future like i i really admire gene roddenberry's vision of this utopian future. And I especially appreciate it because as a science fiction fan, so much of science fiction is dystopian. It's really nice that there is Star Trek, which is really utopian. But I just think that it's completely unrealistic that we would ever achieve the the world that he was envisioning. And I grew up with TOS and then when I was in high school, TNG premiered. And when I was that age, I, I really identified with this core vision of the utopian future. 
And for a long time, you know, I believed that the future was going to be like this world that I saw in Star Trek and that we were going to get there and that we were going to get there in the not too distant future. And then I got older and, you know, had more life experiences and so became wiser in how things work, which, you know, you naturally do as you get older. And I just came to to feel that while it's something that we should always aspire to, it's not something that we should expect. That's why I came to love Deep Space Nine, because I feel like the reality is that, and maybe the message of Star Trek really is and should be, that we have to fight for that future, mm. that it's not just going to happen, and that there's always going to be someone who's trying to tear us down. And that's what the Zindi represent in the third season of Enterprise and where the Mako come into play. And I think the Mako represent that side of us that has to fight for the world that we want. And if we want to have a utopian society and we want to get rid of the bad elements of the world, we have to fight for it. And in a way for me, the Mako kind of embody that. And so I actually think that they fit perfectly into Star Trek because they support that side of Star Trek that allows us to look at ourselves and it's a commentary on who we are. And it allows us to tell realistic stories that actually have lessons that we can uh, take and apply to help move us towards the future. I think the other thing that we can take from the militarization and the uh, the conflicts that we see in, she mentioned Deep Space Nine and also in season three of Enterprise, is that as much as we might want this utopian future and that's what we're aiming for, we also can't control other people. And so... Right. Um, there's going to be conflict because not everyone's going to share that same vision and that's just the reality. And even your story about, you know, watching TOS Next Gen and then getting older and having life experiences, listening to you talk about that reminds me very much of what Archer went through and coming to terms mm. with, yeah, this is what we aspire to, this is, you know, th these are my values, but the rest of the world's, not like that. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I can see that too. Although I never had to fight reptiles or insects. So that's just one thing that Archer has up on me. That's true. Did you fight the occasional shark though? No sharks, no sharks. Uh, but I did wake up in New York one time and I didn't know where I was or what year it was. So <laughs> I see. yeah, but I, maybe I shouldn't tell that story. We'll save on the that show. for another time. <laughs> All right. Well, any final thoughts on the Mako, how they fit into Star Trek, Kate? Overall, I do think they are underexplored. I think there is some potential yeah. there to, to look at those bigger themes that we have been discussing today. But they do add value to the series. They do fill in some gaps for us and explore how we can get from where we are today into that Star Trek of the 24th century. Uh, and as I've said, they do provide some great comedic elements as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm hesitant to say I'm a fan of the Mako, 
but I do think they add some value. Yeah. Well, I'm with you on that too. I'm not particularly a fan of the Mako and I probably would prefer my Star Trek without a pure military group being on the ship. However, I can understand why they were put on the show and I do think that they add value to the show and I think they do support the uh, message of what was uh, being conveyed through that season and they fit into Star Trek. And so, you know, they're an interesting part. And plus they give us a great new element Mm -hmm. that we get an enterprise that we can then try to figure out how it fits into the bigger picture of Star Trek and how we can follow some fun paths through there to, uh, to, you know, figure out how they maybe were incorporated into Starfleet because ultimately Starfleet, and this takes us back to the very beginning of the show here tonight. Fans can debate if they want to whether Starfleet is a military organization or a scientific exploratory organization, but the reality is that it's both, Mm -hmm. and it has to be both, because if it didn't have a military capacity, then we wouldn't be exploring for very long, because we would quickly be conquered, we would be destroyed, Uh, We just couldn't survive in the galaxy that way. I think that the line has to be drawn, though, between how do you use your military capacity? And that's something that, you know, we have to deal with in the world today. You know, we might see ourselves as benevolent, but we have a military capacity. Now, how do we use that military? And for what purposes? And when we do use it, what does it say about us? Mm. And does it mean that we are still a benevolent group, organization, country, whatever we are? And that's something Starfleet has to, to grapple with. But I think the fine, the line is that Starfleet can be primarily exploratory, humanitarian, maintain a strong military capacity in order to protect themselves, to support their primary mission. Mm which is to seek out new worlds, new civilizations, and new life. So for me, it's not a debate. It's not one or the other. Mm. Uh, They're both. And so the Mako fit into that. I just wish uh, at the end of the day that instead of calling them Mako, they called them the catfish. (laughs) The catfish. Because then Trip would have really warmed up to them, right? That's right. (laughs) But then Trip would have given them a a nickname like Pan Fried. (laughs) Only when they're getting a bit hot under the collar. Oh. Well, you know, you know, he was being hit on pretty intensely there for a while. He was. All right. So, well, this has been a very interesting discussion, Kate, tonight, talking about the Mako. But, you know, it's not the only thing that we've been talking about here on Trek FM this week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Orb. Great Cisco episodes. I was definitely channeling Cisco, but it's it's a great episode to watch that that passion come out of him. That he is a passionate captain, you know, and man. The ready room. The devil in the dark. Wouldn't there be a point if they can go through rocks so easily that they would have depleted that entire planet of its resources in the last fifty thousand years? Decade. 
Voyager STO. Well, Voyager's pretty much the only series that hasn't had much content. Well, yeah, I think about it. You've got loads from the original series, loads from the next generation, and you've got pretty much all of the main ones from Deep Space Nine, apart from the Volta. To the journey! Kez. Kind of like the reverse of a kangaroo. It's like this pouch on her back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That would be kind of unusual. It would be the most unusual maternity uniform ever. Commentary, Trek stars. What dreams may come? It's kind of like 1984. And just like in 1984, like, that guided tour is more interesting than most books that have an extremely compelling story. Warp 5. The Augments Arc. You know, and and as you say, all of this was about, from his perspective, trying to improve humanity and thinking he was doing the right thing and he was was not prepared to do absolutely anything for it. He wasn't prepared to kill another human being. Trek News and Views. A taste of Armageddon. So basically some scientist goes to command and says, look, I've I've developed this new weapon. No, you can't do that. It's not in the rules. Literary Treks. Missions End. The question is, do you feel like Section 31 is overused? Everyone wants to use Section 31, and so they just keep popping up in every story, and I think sometimes it does a disservice to the idea of Section 31. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily dose of Trek Talk. We have a new Star Trek Talk for you every day of the week, and some days we even have two shows for you, and you'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zoom. You can download or stream from the website. Many, many ways for you to get our show. So go check them all out. And you can go to trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get all the links. Well, Kate, let's tell everyone where to contact us if they'd like to share their thoughts on the Mako or anything involving Starfleet's mission, militarization of Starfleet, whatever it is. You can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that will come to Kate and me by email. You can also send us a voicemail, and we would love to hear your voice. Would you like to hear everyone's voice, Kate? I'd absolutely love to. All of those cute accents. Exactly. Maybe we'll find a few listeners with cute Australian accents (laughs) as well. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, look on any page on our website. On the right-hand side of the page, you will see a tab that says Send Voicemail. If you click that, a box will appear, and you can use your webcam's microphone to record a message and upload it to us as an MP3 file from the box. So we'd love for you to do that. If you'd like to talk to other listeners and other members of the Trek FM crew, you can do that on our forums at trek.fm slash forums. There is a section there for Enterprise already and one for Warp 5, and you can start your own topics as well. And then in social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, and you'll find us on Twitter, tweet away about Star Trek all the time under username Trekfm. Now, Kate, when you're not, you know, hanging around with Major Hayes, having a few drinks with the Mako, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter primarily at Kate is great okay. Whether you'd like to talk about this episode, Enterprise in general, or even to send us some feedback about other shows, we're still getting some great feedback about all of our shows so far. So we really appreciate that. Send me an app reply if you'd like me to follow you and uh, we can chat about uh, whether, as I said, whether it's Star Trek or, or anything really. Excellent. 
Good. And if you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username. And I also have my own website at cbrianjones.com if you want to, you know, check in on some non-Star Trek stuff as well, especially if you're a college football fan. Come and visit <laughs> me over there. I'm gonna get my get my football stuff up there pretty soon now that the season is underway. Even the Georgia Bulldogs fans, Chris? Yes, Robbie is welcome to come over there with me. Hey, we're both in the SEC. We're SEC brothers. <laughs> no problems there. <laughs> Speaking of that, you know, I do a couple of other shows on the network here with Matthew Rushing, who is also an SEC brother of a rival school, the Texas a and Maggies. Matthew and I do literary treks on Sunday, where we talk Star Trek books and comics. And on Monday, we do The Orb, where we talk about Deep Space Nine just like we talk about Enterprise here. So check those out. And then on Tuesdays, you'll find me on The Ready Room, where I'm joined by hosts from all across the network, as well as other special guests, as we talk about all five live-action Star Trek series, movies, other special topics. And you can uh, check that out as well. And just go over to trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory, and you'll find all those links over there. And... Also, before we let everyone go, Kate, we'd like to ask you to please support our sponsors for this week's show. Your support of our sponsors is very important to making it possible for us to bring Warp 5 to you every week. First, there's Squarespace, the web's best hosting in CMS that makes it simple for you to create a beautiful blog, website, portfolio, an online store, really pretty much anything you can imagine. I love Squarespace and I'd love for you to go try it for yourself free for 14 days. Go create your own space by visiting squarespace.com and get that free trial. And then when you sign up, use offer code TREK9 to save 10% off your lifetime purchase on your accounts and choose the annual plan and you'll get a custom domain registration as well. It's very easy to hook up. So we thank Squarespace for their support of Warp 5 and you for supporting Squarespace. Also, please visit trekfan.org. Now, Trekfan is not an ordinary Star Trek fan club. This is a place where you can come together with other fans to share your love for Star Trek, to collaborate and solve puzzles and complete real-life mission objectives that will help move us towards the Star Trek future. So turn your love for Star Trek into something great and support us and support Trekfan by visiting trekfan.org. Solve that first puzzle, take the next step on your adventure, and we thank Trekfan for their support of Warp 5 as well. And Kate, we do this every week, but we just want to remind everyone that if you like the smooth jazz version of Where My Heart Will Take Me that we use here on Warp 5, go to iTunes, go to Amazon, wherever you get your MP3 files, and pick up a copy of Andrew Allen's album Smooth Federation. He has nine additional covers of music from Star Trek in a smooth jazz style. And Kate, think about, you know, some moment in Star Trek that you'd like to hear covered in smooth jazz style, besides where my heart will take me here anyway. What would you like to hear? Oh, you put me on the spot a bit there, Chris. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what I'd like to hear? I'd like to hear an Andrew Allen original with snippets from that moment in Wrath of Khan where we get Kirk yelling out, Khan! <laughs> just that you don't want to combine it with Spock yelling kind <laughs> that can be the uh, the follow up alright so this is going to be like a smooth jazz remix That's of right. Kirk yelling kind mm, okay. that'd be awesome alright well Andrew please get on that we're going to be looking forward to that 
in、uh, the sequel album, Smoother Federation. <laughs> I don't know if that's really in the drawing board or not. But seriously, go over and pick up Andrew's album, Smooth Federation. It's a great album. You'll really love it. And lastly, if you would personally like to support what we're doing here at Trek Film and our programming, go over to trek.fm/donate. We have Alien-themed badges and art prints over there. We have eight different ones right now. They're original illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. The badges are 44 millimeters, and the art prints are A5. So they're about, if you're American, they're about half of a letter size. So they're a nice size for you to frame, put around a desk. They're really, really nice illustrations, and we have different contribution levels that you can choose from. And you can mix and match badges and art prints. You know, choose what you want, and your contributions make it possible for us to pay for the cost of production, storage, and bandwidth that's needed to bring Warp Five and all our other programming to you every week. So we really appreciate your support on that. Go over to trek.fm/donate and choose your aliens today. So thanks everyone for listening. Hope you'll join us again next week here in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp Five. <laughs>